Everybody, good to see you. Um, yeah, if you're new here, another welcome to you. My name is Philip. I lead the team and uh, speaking into this timeless series, as Mike has said. Um, but just a little bit more kind of church news, if I may. Uh, John, um, who is in Istanbul this weekend, one of our pastors, he preached, I thought, brilliantly last weekend to bring us into 40 for 40 and to inspire us to pray. Uh, if you haven't caught up on that, do catch up on that because we're in this season now of prayer and he inspired us, I thought, wonderfully to do just that. And one of the things that he mentioned about how God has um, effectively answered our prayers in the past has been through uh, bringing an increasingly strong leadership base to us as a church. And that really is true. Uh, God has built our eldership base, our, our base of pastors, our wide leadership team, and we're increasingly strong in that area, which is really a testament to God's grace and to the power of prayer. And actually, that, that base is growing all the time. I wanted to let you know as a church that we as an eldership team are really pleased to have invited uh, David and Ann Roussel to join our team of couples and, and David to join our team of potential elders. So we sit as a team of six guys, three elders, three uh, might be coming into eldership in the future and we would love David to join that team and he's wonderfully said yes, which we're really, really excited about. And uh, Dave and Anne are a wonderful couple. They're quite new to the church in the last couple of years. Um, but the reason why we feel perhaps unusually to make the invitation now rather than later, I guess it's probably threefold. One, uh, they come as a known quantity. These guys have been ministering faithfully uh, in their church, uh, another new ground church in Sussex for probably more years than they'd care for me to mention, pushing towards 40. Uh, David was an elder in that church for well over 20 years. They're very much a known quantity to us as a family of churches, and they've come in, haven't they, and just blessed us wonderfully. We're so grateful for their wisdom, for their pastoral heart, for the way they've led us and taught us and just got stuck in and served. And so we're super excited to see what God might do with David, particularly in that track as we go through that this year, which is really exciting. Now, one of the things about having a, a plural eldership team, which is the Bible's clear mandate for what uh, pastors look like, it's more than one, it's a plural team, is we get to bat things around together, we get to work things through together and push things uh, back and forth together. And we did a bit of reflecting on last week's message. Uh, so I didn't preach on the subject of transgender last week uh, because I, I lost a whole week of prep because my, my boy was in hospital. And so we had a video a message from Andrew Wilson on the subject of transgender, which was largely uh, brilliant, really, really excellent. Recommend that you catch up with it. Um, but actually on reflection, reflecting as how some of you receive some of it and how you interpret some of it and how we then reflected afterwards. We thought it's just one uh, kind of point of clarification worth bringing. So it's not like a big correction moment, but it is a point of clarification because one of the jobs of uh, teams of elders is to protect the sound doctrine of the church. And so it's this really, that Andrew, uh, who is a, a friend of mine and a wonderful, wonderfully gifted teacher and pastor, he rightly, if you've seen the message, he called us to love people regardless of their background, their worldview, their sexuality, their self-identity and so forth, and to simply invite anyone and everyone to come and explore Christ. And we heartily amen to that. But actually what he didn't do, and you can't do all of these things in a half an hour message, it's impossible to cover everything in something so complex, is to really touch upon what we would want and expect to see should somebody who was transgender uh, become a Christian, which is something we'd love to see in the life of our, of our church. And so the point is this, that 
The language of the Bible, once you cross the line of faith and become a Christian, the language of the Bible is, is quite uh, stark. It uses the language of transformation, doesn't it? Salvation results in becoming a new creation, the Bible says. Going from old to new, darkness to light, being spiritually born again. It's the language of real transfa- transformation. It's not we just sort of slightly change a bit or, or Jesus is added into our life to make things slightly better. It's remarkable transformation. And so to that end, should somebody who was uh, transgender be in the midst of our church, which we'd love, and should they come to faith in Christ and name, him, uh, name Jesus to be Lord, which we'd love, we would then expect to see some change in them, just as all believers begin to change as a result of being a new creation. So for that person, we would expect to see them naming Jesus as Lord, and then as a result of that, saying things like, well, Jesus, if you're Lord, and you say in your word, which Andrew pointed out last week, that everyone is made, everyone is made male and female, what does it mean for me to step into that identity, given that's what you say I am, as opposed to how I feel I am? And that would be in the context of discipleship and a loving church community. And for some people, the nature of a, a, a salvation moment is everything just changes. Some of you have got saved and, and addictions and habits just got moved straight away. For others of us, we know there are ongoing challenges as we work at our salvation. Some things take years and decades, and we battle on, empowered by the Spirit and in the grace of community. For somebody may suddenly be able just to immediately re-identify as the biological sex in which they were born. Somebody else may take a long time to learn how to do that, and they do that in the context of a loving community. That's what we would love to see is the transformation that the gospel brings. We want to just to clarify that. There is loads more that could be said, obviously, about such a thing. And I can see loads of you with question marks. And that's why um, next week, so a week on Wednesday, we're going to conclude our time in series with a big questions night. You saw the, the date on the screen just now. Which is our, our way, really, of coming together as a church instead of life groups before streams just to really work this whole series through. Because we've touched on so many complex and sensitive and important things. We're looking at abortion next week, I trust, with the same attitude of grace and truth. And so, the big questions tonight on the 11th of March great thing to come to ask questions, be equipped, work through this stuff together as a community. The guy mainly answering the questions won't be me, it'll be a young man called Andrew Bunt, who is part of the New Ground family of churches. And Andrew's a real gift to our family, mainly because he loves Jesus, that's the main thing. Secondly, because he's a really gifted young theologian who really has mined the scriptures very, very carefully. And thirdly, his own story is as a guy who experiences same-sex attraction and has experienced some degree of gender confusion in the past. So he's got a really unique story, a unique angle. He could really help us to land this series. Would love you to consider coming on the 11th of March. If you're new here at King Church, we don't mess around. As you can see, we look at the, uh, the sensitive and big things. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the subject of pornography. And next week, as I say, I'll be looking at the subject of abortion. And and the reason for that is, as Micah says, the context is not that we just randomly pick contentious things to talk about. That's not our heart here at King's Church. But we've spent a number of weeks trying to take a step back and ask God, what does your timeless word have to say about what it means to express our uh, humanity, our maleness, our femaleness, our sexuality, our gender, and so forth? Okay, now there's going to be some heavy moments in this morning. Of course, there is the nature of this kind of subject. And I want you to know that if you are already thinking, ah, wish I hadn't come to church this morning because this is a real live issue for you, I just want you to hear something very simple that Andrew said last week. And it's just this, God loves you, we love you, and we're really glad that you're here. And if you're thinking, this is not really my thing, why am I come to church? 
I don't want you to be naive. This is a live issue for every single church, and it's important that we talk about it, and it's important that we do so like Jesus in grace and in truth, right? So there'll be some moments this morning, but to kind of start a bit more light-hearted, I just thought we would um, kind of get ourselves thinking about the whole, whole subject of pornography, uh, by consulting two of the most wonderful philosophers. Uh, they live in New York. They go by the names of Chandler Bing and, uh, uh, Chandler Bing and Joe, Joey Tribbiani. And I want to show just a short clip from an episode of Friends. Uh, those of you who love your friends, who, who likes Friends here? Yeah, everybody loves Friends. Even you youngsters might have come across Friends. Anyway, everyone know they're going to do a special episode, aren't they? They're going to come together for a one-off this year. Who's excited? I'm excited. And so that reminded me that ages ago, back in the day, like in 1996 or something probably, um, there was an episode of Friends called The One About Porn. And uh, in The One About Porn, basically what happens is that Joey and Chandler are watching TV one day, and suddenly they realize they've got, ch- they got this porn channel they haven't paid for, they didn't get it, they don't know why it's there, but they're really pleased about it, and they're so amazed that it's there, and so desperate not to lose it, that they say, we mustn't turn the TV off. And so the whole episode is kind of partly based around them panicking, they can't turn the free porn off. Okay, and we're just going to cut to the very last minute of the episode. Hi. Hi. I was just at the bank, and there was this really hot teller, and she didn't ask me to go do it with her in the vault. (laughs) Same kind of thing happened to me. Woman pizza delivery guy comes over. Gives me the pizza, takes the money, and leaves. What, no, like, nice apartment? Bet the bedrooms are huge? (laughs) nothing! You know what? We have to turn off the porn. I think you're right. All right, ready? One, two, three. Three. That's kind of nice. Yeah, it's kind of a relief. You want to see if we still have it? Yeah. <laughs> free time and we have free time! <laughs> what are you guys interested in? Then? You're like, am I allowed to laugh at this? What's he going to show? I'm in church, feeling awkward. Um, but it tells us a few things. I'm not just showing that just to kind of be frivolous. It tells us a few important things. One of the things it tells us is that in the 90s, kind of before the internet, that's kind of how porn was often seen. Was there something fairly harmless, maybe something necessary for a vibrant sex life, but relatively harmless, uh, if you're a bit embarrassing, maybe if you were caught watching it. Um, but for a kind of enlightened, liberal people, like the characters in Friends, it was just part of being a sexually liberated person. But the interesting thing is that regardless of where the Bible has always stood, and Orthodox Christianity has always stood, the interesting thing is that secular culture is kind of catching up a little bit. Because the, 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 the view among secular Western culture is much less that now. And uh, as you can imagine, I've been appropriately researching into these things uh, the last couple of weeks. And you don't have to go very far. There is just a litany of websites, articles, uh, celebrities, blogs, all kinds of people are basically saying porn is not that anymore. Actually, it's not harmless. It is doing great damage to us, to our brains, to our children, to our society. 
I'll just give you one example, and I could have given you loads and loads and loads of non-Christian TED Talks, multiple TED Talks, people saying, please wake up, porn is really not friends harmless-like. There's a, uh, a uh, professor called Paul Wright at the University of Indiana, and um, he is responding to the state of Virginia's desire to actually legalize and legislate to try and control porn, so damaging is it? And he just says this, it's quite a convoluted sentence, but I thought it was just helpfully you know, kind of sober-minded and reflecting, I think, of where some of our culture, at least, has got to. He says this, is, it's a long sentence, is there su- enough suggestive evidence of harm, of porn, in terms of compulsive use and socialization towards attitudes and behaviors that most people perceive as antisocial, that scientists, like him, should support policy efforts calling for further research, community, and school education programs, and programs aimed at the prevention of harmful effects? He said, I think the majority of scientists familiar with the research in this area would say yes. In other words, people are waking up saying, actually, this is not harmless. This is causing major, major damage to our society. And that's people with no kind of Christian worldview. And for us, this is a significant issue to talk about, but both within the context of this series, but also within, if I like, the prophetic context for us as a church family. Because if you're part of King's Church, you'll know at the beginning of the year, we were, we were putting our vision forward to learn how to pray within our wider vision. And we were preaching about uh, what it means not only to pray audaciously, but also to pray repentantly on occasion. And as I was preparing for that, we had this really significant prophetic word that came through from the wonderful Rachel Woodcroft, which in simple terms was encouraging us, exhorting us as a church to walk upon the highway of holiness. Remember that? It's quite a significant Sunday for us. God really spoke about what it means to to walk as Christians, if we are Christians, upon a highway of holiness. Not so we can be moral and impress God, but so that the promise of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 40 comes true, which is that we encounter the glory of God and know joy forevermore. Significant prophetic word that we as a team have kind of mulled over, uh, over and over again. And that just got me thinking this week about another highway that the Bible talks about. And it's in Proverbs chapter 7, and Solomon, who is known for his incredible wisdom in Proverbs 7, basically warns his sons about the danger of succumbing to adultery. And he writes this in Proverbs 7:24. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways, her being an, an adulteress, or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. And Solomon just warns his sons about the dangers of adultery. And he basically says, if you go down that highway, unlike the highway of holiness, where you can expect to encounter the glory of God and genuine joy forevermore, that highway isn't just a bit negative, it leads to the grave. It leads to a kind of spiritual death. And if you know your Bible in Matthew 5, you'll know that Jesus doesn't let us off with saying, okay, that's just to do with actually having an affair with someone, this is my wife. Matthew 5, Jesus raises the bar and said what the the law has always meant is that adultery starts in the heart. And he says that any lust towards someone that isn't our spouse is adultery. And he encourages us to take drastic action. Otherwise, he says, the grave, hell, could be our ultimate destination. It's really serious and sobering. So I just want to remind us 
or maybe even for the first time, explain to you why pornography specifically, that's what I'm talking about specifically, but one outworking of lust, is so grave-like, is so clearly not harmless and fun, and actually brings a type of spiritual death. And like I said at the beginning, I want you to know, if this is your real-life issue, as it is for many, there is hope here this morning. It came through in our pre-service prayer this morning. God wants to bring hope and grace and healing. So I'm going to depress you a bit, but that's in order to bring you to a place where God can't wait to bring that message of grace and hope and healing to us. Why is pornography so grave-like? Number one, it harms women. It harms women. Did you notice for Joey and Chandler, as we were kind of laughing along, what they were saying was, well, the woman at the bank is now basically indistinguishable from the porn actress that I was probably masturbating to, in blunt terms. Joey says, the woman who dropped off the pizza, well, she's just now a potential sexual conquest. And they say it, and it's funny, and we laugh along, but that's kind of what they're saying, that actually pornography warps our view of reality. And the, the woman at the bank becomes kind of a, a sexual fantasy. Let me push on this a bit harder. Uh, Julia Long, who is a, an atheist and a lesbian, she writes for the Washington Post and the UK website here, so she probably wouldn't be tying into lots of things we've been teaching so far. But listen to what she says about pornography and the way in which it harms women specifically. She writes this, A current government inquiry, our government in the UK, into sexual harassment in schools and a new cross-party campaign in 2016 to tackle misogynist abuse online have all highlighted the ways in which pornography contributes to and legitimizes negative attitudes with very real impacts on the lives of women and girls. She goes on to say, one of the things that pornography does extremely efficiently is provide an endless flow of narratives of women being treated as objects, violated, or done to. And so the world around us is starting to catch up that this is horrendous news, not for men and women, but particularly women. And of course, the timeless word of God has always told us how women are to be treated right from the beginning. That was the basis of our series, however many weeks and months ago. In Genesis 1, what does God say about how he's created human beings? Just accidents of time and chance that just sprung up one day after the right combination of molecules and atoms? No. Genesis 1 says that every man, every woman is created in the image of God. That means that every woman is, is not just a, a, a random chance collection, a combination of time and space. She's not an object to be consumed and discarded. Not because that's not a nice thing to do. We've got a better story to tell than that. Because she's made in the image of God. There's a divine imprint upon her. Meaning she has a unique value and dignity and worth. Secondly, pornography doesn't just harm women, it harms relationships. If you've watched Friends any time at all, you'll know that we kind of laugh along with Joey, particularly in all his various sexual exploits and one-night stands, and, and we laugh along. But if you watch the series for long enough, you'll know how dysfunctional his life is. He can't form really long-lasting, genuine relationships. The comedian Chris Rock, in 2018, he did a new stand-up tour. Uh, and part of his material, not to just be funny, but to make a very serious point, was he was very honest, to his great credit, and he said the main reason, not the only reason, why his marriage had been shipwrecked was because of his addiction to pornography. 
And there he was, a secular guy, popular guy, funny guy, not a natural kind of guy that you'd find in the life of the church saying, this thing has destroyed my life, destroyed my marriage. And again, the timeless word of God has always told us those kinds of things. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And the reality is you can't keep the marriage bed pure if you keep on inviting multiple partners into it, even if they are digital and virtual. And if you're not yet married and you'd like to be married, why would you be teeing up multiple people who will try and effectively come in and be a third person in your future marriage bed? I've had too many conversations with people after they've got married having to work through the stuff of the past. It does not mean there is not massive grace for you here this morning. But because I love you, I'm also warning you. You don't want to store up hundreds, thousands of rivals to your marriage. Number three, pornography harms children. The average age, my first experience of porn was the kind of classic one of the 90s. You had a dodgy mate who basically found a dodgy stash of magazines in a shed somewhere. That's, That's not the experience now of most young people. The average age of a child to see pornography online is 11. 80%, 80%, these are nationally verified statistics, 80% of teenagers between 15 and 17 have already graduated to viewing hardcore porn, if not either regularly or multiple times. 67% of teenagers, parents, admit to clearing their browser history most weeks to hide it from their parents. And uh, this is the one that just <laughs> absolutely finished me off this week. It was a, uh, was a UK charity, I forget their name, but they did a survey a couple of years ago and they asked uh, 7,000 teenage boys who'd had the courage to say they do watch a lot of online porn. They asked them a number of questions and one question they asked them was, uh, do women fantasize about being raped? And <laughs> over half of the boys responded, yeah, I think they do. There's a great book um, that I've read that I'd recommend to you uh, called Divine Sex. If ever there was a book title to try and get a readership, that probably is it. Um, but it's actually written from a, a clearly Christian point of view by a, a pastor who pastored a church in London uh, for a number of years, lots of young people. It's a brilliant book because he does a very good job of showing us where our culture's now got to around the whole God of sex that we worship. And he does an even better job of telling us the beautiful Christian story that we have to tell around singleness and celibacy and sex and marriage. It's a really great book if you want to dig into these things more. And with regards to children, he makes this very good but pretty chilling point. He says, in an age where we expect our daughters to be treated with unprecedented dignity, respect and equality by their male peers, amen, we have handed the sexual formation of our young people and our boys in particular to the sex industry with its dark vision of sex and relationships. He's like, on the one hand, we're calling out Harvey Weinstein and saying, how dare you, that is wrong. And then at the same time, we're buying into the industry in which he works, which continually objectifies women and allows boys to learn about sex through porn. And the timeless word of God has always said both. It's always said, yes, women are of of incredible value and dignity and worth because they've got a divine imprint upon them. And there is a way to treat the gift of sex. It's like fire. 
You treat it well, it brings life and warmth. You treat it wrong, it brings destruction and pain. I'm going to keep on going, and then we're going lift to our, lift our gaze, I promise. It harms us and our, it, it harms uh, women, it harms um, children, it harms relationships, and it harms us and our relationship with God. Porn is addictive, right? If you are in that space, as many of us will be, you know that. Joey and Chandler know that. Did you notice that? They turned it off. They're like, this is, this is not good for us. We need to turn this thing off. What happens a few seconds later? Turn it back on again. And it's funny. It's actually quite a profound point. The point is, this stuff's addictive. It's really hard to turn off. And science is really clear on why now. Again, you can read that book I mentioned to you, plenty of other things. Science is very clear now with its understanding of dopamine, the pleasure chemical that's released in our brain, uh, and our neurological highways, the other highways, just how addictive pornography is and how it, it causes our brains to drive down those same, hi- to, to drive pornography down those same highways to get the dopamine released that we're becoming addicted to. And again, the Bible has always said this. It's timeless. Romans 6 says sin is not just this mild thing that's a bit problematic. It says sin makes you a slave. It's addictive. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality, Paul says. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We've got a great story to tell as Christians. Our bodies are not just disposable, dispensable, just to be brought in line with how we feel or what we want. They're precious. Our Savior was pleased to be born into one. He suffered in a physical body. He was tempted and yet without sin in a physical body. He allowed joyfully so that body to be broken for you and raised back to life for you and he ascended and reigned in a physical body. It has profound significance. It has a sacred quality to it. And a result of putting your trust and faith in that, that Savior whose body was broken and then raised for you is that your very body then becomes clean and washed and blemish-free, just like was being spoken about before. And then this remarkable thing happens that the Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters at the beginning of time and creation itself and who, who raised that broken body of Christ from death to life, he says, I'm now pleased to come and dwell within you. That's how sacred and profound our physical bodies are. And then many of us would take something like pornography in all its forms and lust in all its forms and it's like pumping sewage through this precious temple that we've been made into. And it so damages our relationship with God. It so does. And just to press on this a bit more, if you're thinking, yeah, fine, I get that. But not in the church, surely this stuff. Or you're thinking, this is, this is me and my biggest challenge and source of pain and shame, but it's probably just me. I just want to knock both those two things on the head. Premier Christianity magazine in 2016 did a survey of churches. Here's what they found. 30% of church leaders access porn on the internet more than once a month. 42% of Christian men say they have a porn addiction. 75% of Christian men say they view pornography on a monthly or two-monthly basis. And to add to that, 
Secular stats tell us that 33% of women aged between 18 and 35 would view pornography at least once a month, which means in the church, the current stats suggest about 10% of women. This would be a very live issue for them, for you. So we mustn't be naive about it. And you also mustn't sit there thinking it's just me. Because I'm telling you, it's not. And that is comforting to an extent, to know that you're not alone. But what I hope is more comforting is to know that we want to talk about this. We want to be a family who are open and honest. And there are plenty of people here today who would love to come alongside you and to bring freedom. Because the promise of the gospel is that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Not for a lukewarm, shameful existence. And to prove that to you, I'm going to invite my very good friend Seamus, who is not just a, a genius behind the sound and the visuals, he's also a wonderful man full of courage and grace. Hi, um, my name is Seamus, uh, and I'm standing here today to share with you my experience with pornography uh, and how God has freed me from my addiction. So I became a Christian in 2012. Uh, after the film 500 Days of Summer led me to the Christian Union at Kingston University. Uh, But that's another story for another day. When I gave my life to Christ, he restored many areas of my life. I found myself having a desire to know more about this God who saved me and having compassion for others where there used to be frustration. But there was one area of my life that I couldn't overcome, and that was my relationship with pornography. It messed up my view of sex, caused me to lie more times than I can count. Most importantly, the sheer weight of shame that I carried prevented me from approaching God as a loving father. I concluded that I was going to be one of those guys who lives with this for the rest of his life. This terrible secret that a lot of people have, but we don't talk about enough. It was summertime last year, and my wife, Abby, and I found ourselves supporting a number of people who'd been badly hurt by adultery. In the space of a few months, we were hearing about five acts of adultery, most of which had broken up families. I found myself thinking, it doesn't start with cheating on your wife with another woman. It starts with adultery of the heart, and I'm already watching porn on a regular basis. So where does that leave me? I felt a stirring in my spirit that said, don't let this be your story. Then June last year, I was sat where you are now in a Sunday service like today. And in the final minute, someone brought a prophecy. The prophecy was calling out a lie that I was believing a lie that I was on the bench, in the stands of the kingdom of heaven, watching as others get to do God's work, but I don't because I'm not good enough. Maybe this had something to do with the fact that when I was a teenager, I spent most of my Sunday mornings on the substitute bench on the football pitch, watching my teammates play from the sidelines because I simply wasn't good enough. Perhaps God uses prophetic moment to dramatically alter the trajectory of my life. Because then the person who brought the prophecy asked the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth, that we all have a part to play and that we're made in the image of God, to extend the kingdom of God in a way that nobody else is built to do. Wow. Nowhere else will you hear a message like this, not in the workplace or on social media, and certainly not on the football pitch. I grabbed one of the leaders at the end of the service, confessed everything, and asked for their help. He handled what I shared with brotherly love, wisdom, and care. I never felt judged or viewed any differently by him. Just a child of God asking a fellow brother for help. We prayed, and he gave me some sound advice about how to confess this to Abby 
and ask for her forgiveness. When Abby and I got home, we talked it through. I'm not going to lie to you, it was the hardest thing I've ever done, and I never want to have to do it again. But I do have to take this moment to commend my wife, Abby, who handled the conversation with the grace and courage needed to see us through. Even though it broke our hearts and there were many tears, but it was in that moment of complete and utter vulnerability that God met with us. He showed us a path to make things right, to lean on his strength and not our own, to allow him to carry the burden of our shame. Since then, God has taken us both on a journey to rebuild our marriage on him, the living stone that will not be shaken. It says in 1 Peter 2 verse 4 to 6, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. We both agree that after this moment, our marriage has been better than ever. God has been on our lips and in our hearts more in the last nine months than in our entire relationship. When I've shared this story with others, I've said that overcoming my addiction was like night and day. My temptations have dramatically reduced, and I now have a joy for God that I haven't felt since 2012. I have a number of systems and accountabilities in place to keep me from slipping back. Don't get me wrong, I'm not perfect. I know I sin every day in a multitude of ways, but now I recognize that I just can't do this on my own. I've learned how vital it is to be more authentic, honest, and transparent with Abby, as well as my family, friends, and life group. One year ago, my shame was so immense that I never would have grabbed a microphone and shared even a prayer with you all. But now I stand here today, a man who is no longer living in the clutches of pornography, not by the merit of my own righteousness, but in the grace of Christ's sacrifice and his ongoing grace in my life. Nothing else. I once thought I was going to be addicted to pornography for my entire life, but I now know that the miraculous power of God is real. And his desire is to see men and women freed from sin so we can live life in all its fullness. If you're sitting here like I was a year ago, please don't let shame prevent you from seeking help. Know that you are loved, cherished, and that God has so much more in store for you. Thank you. Hmm. What he said. Basically. Thank you, Seamus. It's a huge amount of courage. Really blessed us, as I can see before me. Just want to begin to land us uh, by just giving us, I guess maybe fleshing out a little bit of, of Seamus's root into freedom and joy and the glory of God. Um, I'm not going to do it quickly, but I'm going to do it quickly. But just so you know, uh, there is a, a little handout that I, I prepared that if you want to grab it, it's just on the connect point. You can just take it afterwards and the prayer ministry team have got a few as well. And the basic highlights of that are this, that the way that Seamus has modeled and I think is, is helpful for people to walk into freedom uh, has five steps. Not three points for me today, but five. One is, is to get real. 
One is to get real. Lamentations, excuse me. Lamentations chapter three, verse 40 says, let us examine our ways and test them. And let us return to the Lord. Get real. Be honest with yourself right now. Be honest. Where are you at on the highway? The highway of holiness and the other highway that leads to the grave. Might be in that grave place. It's just like Seamus was. Maybe it's just further back, just lower level, but on the highway. Be honest. And also, if you do, vo- if you do view pornography, be, be honest about what is driving it. There's always a thing behind the thing, as I like to say. It's the symptom of a cause. What are you looking for? Be honest about what is driving you to that thing and return to the Lord. Number two, get relational. James 5, verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. There are promises there. (coughs) Tell someone, do what Seamus did. It's a game changer. You give shame the kick down the aisle it needs. Light is shone into darkness. You tell a trusted friend or leader, same sex I would suggest. You remind yourself of Hebrews 12 too, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of God. Job done. Tell someone. Get real, get relational. Number three, get practical. I won't read the whole thing to you, but Nehemiah, have a read of Nehemiah 2, and watch the way that Nehemiah goes about building a wall to keep the enemies out. There's a prophetic message in there. You've got to build a wall. Get practical. And the handout has some practical advice around software and websites and accountability uh, and the various technical things that need to be in place. And I would say, bluntly speaking, if you don't put the practical things in place alongside the spiritual places, you're not just misguided, you're a fool. You need, you need the whole package. <laughs> Excuse me. Number four, get theological. What do I mean by that? I just mean begin to give, give yourself a theology of the body, like I tried to outline before, of what sex really is, of what celibacy is, of what singleness is. Becca gave a great message on singleness before Christmas. We all have a theology, we're all believing stuff about stuff, just call that theology. And society is bombarding you with a story to believe, which in simple terms goes like this. Everyone else is having more sex than you are, The more sex that you can have, the more satisfied and fulfilled that you'll be, and if you don't, you'll be half a person. And the Bible's got a beautiful story to tell around what sex is meant to signpost to. It's got a story to tell about the most fulfilled man who ever lived, who was single and celibate and did not lack in any way. To get informed, get get a theology, read Divine Sex by Jonathan Grant. Remind yourself of what the body is. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And it cost God his life to put the Holy Spirit in this body of yours. So precious. Number five, get devotional. What do I mean by that? I just mean learn to worship Jesus, basically. (laughs) It's no more profound than that. 
you can have the practical things in play and, and know the right theology and have an accountability group and all that kind of stuff. But, but ultimately, and I'm speaking from experience here, by God's grace, not of late in my ministry or in my marriage, but in my youth, I know what it is to look at the wrong stuff and the shame that comes after it. And I'm telling you, what ultimately fixes it is what fixed Seamus. It's Jesus Christ. And it's finding him to be so supreme that when something or someone else glimmers and shines and says there's satisfaction here, there's meaning here, there's pleasure here, you deserve this, you need this, if you've got a vision of what Jesus is like, this incredible person who inhabited a God, humbled himself to inhabit one of our human bodies and was prepared to be tempted in every way, and that means in sexual ways, I assume, and yet was without sin for you. He didn't just come and click a, click a light and said, sin is done with. He, he went without it. He endured every temptation that was coming his way, including sexual sin, and was without sin. And then the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin. Every sexual sin. He absorbed it all upon himself. All the shame that goes with it. And he nailed it to the cross and despised it and left it there. And then he rose into a physical body and ascended in a physical body. And he's there right now in a physical body in the heavens, interceding on your behalf, mediating, advocating, saying, she's in me. She's righteous. Father, draw her back into your arms because she's one of mine. He is amazing. He is so beautiful. He's so glorious. He's so kind. He doesn't scowl upon you now. He looks upon you with a sacred smile. He says, come on home to the Father. That's where you belong. That's who you are. Seated with me in heavenly places. You you get that vision of Jesus. And you can get it now because I'm preaching about it and getting fired up. But it's in that moment when you're tired and it's one in the morning and she looks great. And you're not having sex anytime soon because you're single and celibate. Or you're attracted to the same sex and you're facing a life of singleness and celibacy. It's in that moment where Jesus is supreme and he's beautiful. He becomes enough. And you win. And you know the joy of winning. He's enough. I promise you he's enough. Come to him this morning. Please come to him this morning. We're going to just respond in a couple of ways before I start sniffing. Um, I should have checked this. Did we manage to solve the communion conundrum? Well done, Ross. Wonderful. We're going to share communion together and then go into a time of worship Sorry, can't stop sniffing. Very annoying. I want to do a couple of things. I want to pray for some people. And I also want to help prepare us for communion as well. Because 1 Corinthians 11 does say, before you take communion, everyone ought to examine themselves in order to be in good conscience. So, the first thing is, can we just close our eyes? Is that okay? Because I do want us to be sensitive to each other. If any part of what I've shared, whether it's the specificity of pornography addiction or the more broader piece of being on a highway in which lust could have its way, in a moment I'd love to pray with you. We're going to keep our eyes closed and all I'm going to ask you to do is just to raise your hand and it'll be me, you, and most importantly the God who loves you and is for you. 
Remember the power that came from Seamus' story by, by making a step. And then I'm just going to pray for you. And then also I'm going to pray for all of us that we would come to communion with the appropriate sense of reverence and good conscience. doesn't mean we have to be perfect. We're not. But it does mean that we just use these moments to confess things to God. And then we come to the Lord's Supper in the right frame of mind. And then uh, we'll go into some worship. So if anything at all about this morning has touched you in any way, you'd love to receive the grace and the goodness and the power of God as we all keep our eyes closed. Could you just raise your hand, please? I'd love to pray for you. Wonderful, well done. Keep those hands up. Anybody else? I'm not going to push it any harder or any less than I want to, but I know the power of shame. And I also know that Jesus has dealt with it. Anybody else just want to raise your hand to receive right now the power of the Holy Spirit? Wonderful. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you're doing this morning. We thank you that the only reason that you sober us and warn us and even at times rebuke us is because you love us. You're the perfect Father and you have so much more for us than being held back by the various ways that our sexual brokenness manifests itself. So I just pray for each precious person that raised their hands, would they right now feel your smile of delight upon them? Would they know that you love them? That their identity in Christ is, if they're a Christian, is to be blemish free and pure. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you who are pleased to dwell within them, would you right now empower them to take the steps they need to take to walk the highway of holiness where the glory of God and joy forevermore is promised and to step off the highway that leads to the grave. Bring freedom, I pray. Jesus, you who set us free for freedom, bring freedom, I pray. Amen. And I pray for all of us as we prepare in these moments to... Uh, share communion together. We will just use these next few seconds of silence to talk to you and to confess to you where we have, whether it's our sexuality or anything else, where we have stepped off that highway of holiness. Not so that you condemn us, but so that you forgive us and that you sanctify us and you cause us to walk towards your glory on that highway. So let's just use those few seconds now to talk to God.